0: Hey, it's Justin Harvey. Thanks for tuning in to the Anesthesia Success Podcast, where we take a close look at important topics pertaining to business, practice management, personal finance, and careers for anesthesiologists and pain management physicians. On this show, I work hard to take your critical questions straight to the experts. Thanks for listening. This week, I'm talking to Dr. Vanila Singh about her experience in organizational and policy leadership. We talk about what it takes to keep an even keel when you get involved in politics, and why anesthesia is a specialty that uniquely lends itself to leadership because of the perpetual managing of different stakeholders' expectations while at all times maintaining the primacy of patient well-being. Finally, we talk about why we need more physicians involved in all sorts of institutional decision-making, both in government and other healthcare organizations, in order to continue to emphasize a patient-centric mindset. I really enjoyed this conversation with Dr. Singh, and I hope that you enjoy today's interview. Hello, and welcome to episode 53 of the Anesthesia Success Podcast. I'm really excited to have a special guest with us today, Dr. Vanila Singh. Dr. Singh is the immediate past chief medical officer for the Office of the Assistant Secretary for Health at the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, which you may have heard of. She's also a pain physician and an associate professor of anesthesiology at Stanford University. I'm really excited to have her here today to talk about her extensive experience as an anesthesiologist in public policy and leadership, public health. Dr. Seng, thank you very much for being with us today.
1: Great. Thank you for having me, Justin.
0: Uh, to start off, I, so I recently learned, literally right before this interview, that um, the Department of Health and Human Services is a $1.3 trillion with a T dollar uh, budget organization. So what is it like being the chief medical officer with such a, a huge behemoth.
1: (laughs) Yeah so I mean when I first saw that um, it was amazing right so first of all it's so nice to be able to speak to everybody and share the experiences and really what that whole entity is like on that side of the world in the federal world and the large large U.S. government with such enormous budgets that it's humbling and you think about how we may like hope for a little grant of $10,000 or something, and you know, you're know you talking about a large, large budget, most of which, when you think about it, really goes to CMS, the Medicaid, Medicare realm with lots of payments in that way, uh, but also FDA, C- SAMHSA, uh, there's CDC, which we know in, in today's world just how vital Uh, what their work is in terms of disease prevention from infectious disease to, really they got into the opioid and pain space. uh, and, And so many of the other key agencies, NIH, which it's huge budget for research. So yes, it is huge. It was unfathomable. And then you acclimate and ultimately, you know, people are people and people are the ones that make organizations. They're the ones that make their household. It's just our folks, it's people, that we've seen in some form or fashion throughout our lives.
0: So I, I was giving myself a little civics lesson as I was trying to understand sort of where on the government org chart, the CMO of the Department of Health and Human Services sits. And what I sort of discovered, or correct me if I'm wrong, was that it was basically like right next to the the uh, Surgeon General, as far as the sort of the strata of our physicians in chief. Is that fair to say?
1: Yeah, it is. It is fair to say. I mean, Surgeon General, of course, we all know Dr. Adams is there. He they have a very, you know, important specific purpose with public service announcements, etc. My office was very much in the weeds on all these documents that would come from across agency on a variety of different topics. I had the real privilege to uh, update and brief our leaders in HHS. So HHS is the parent agency and OASH, the Office of Assistant Secretaries, within that one. And uh, there wasn't, there's no CMO in HHS. So I was considered the CMO at HHS in that parent agency realm. So I got to brief them on really important topics and got to take part in key meetings. It was very humbling. There are a lot of people who are unsung heroes there who work all the time and really make things happen. And then of course, uh, before you knew it, the CARA legislation, of the Best Practices Interagency Task Force, which was mandated by Congress to have HHS set this task force up with the Department of Defense and the Veterans Affairs and the Office of National Drug Control Policy at the White House, all of a sudden I was given this uh, huge task uh, from really its beginnings. I sort of dusted off the paper and learned incredible federal processes. And then that actually really took a lot of my time and attention for good reason, because it had everything to do with anesthesiology, acute pain, chronic pain, really things that we as anesthesiologists are very much uh, familiar with, and an opportunity to really begin laying down that foundation in a very formalized manner with so many other specialties and experts, and especially patients. And so that ends up taking up a ton of time, plus all the other things. It was like drinking water from a fire hose. There was no doubt about that.
0: Can you, uh, can you describe the mandate of the task force?
1: Absolutely. So the mandate was really twofold. One is uh, it was established by Congress with very prescriptive folks that they wanted on there. So we had we had to meet the criteria that was so specific in that. And it was to identify gaps and inconsistencies that exist in acute and chronic pain management and remember the context of all this of course was the opioid crisis and the second thing was to lay out best practices so really recommendations for those gaps and inconsistencies so what we really did initially was first do kind of a a national environmental scan of the status so we gathered to the best of our abilities because they wanted us to not only do this nationally, but we had went to county guidelines, organizational guidelines. You think about ASRA or ASIP or what a county somewhere has, you know, people have guidelines about different parts of this and it's enormous. Uh, and so taking that, uh, going through it, uh, because being not only the lead on it, but the subject matter expert on it. Yeah really put a lot on my shoulders. And I was thinking, geez, my colleagues are going to be like, well, how did this get in? Uh, so we, we had to sift through that, kind of make it containable, addressable, knowing that we had a deadline. Uh, we, we knew the task force was going to sunset. And so I put all that together while also in parallel, we were uh, having folks uh, apply. And uh, then it goes through a whole process. It was You know, we were so by the book. I had excellent people who have great integrity and there was no bias or judgment. I know so many great people who applied who didn't get on and people may not know that it wasn't that they didn't, they didn't have much to contribute. So many people would have, but we had criteria specifically laid out by Congress that we had to meet and that included geographic representation. It included uh, minority health representation. It included veteran service organizations. Uh, They wanted people with expertise in mental health, addiction, and a variety of other uh, different aspects and facets of acute and chronic pain. So it was vital. So, you know, what we expected would be the anesthesiologist trained board certified pain management doctor, which I had an amazing number of applicants from, but that hat had been met. Uh, very easy and early and with the best of the best, but we were really trying to meet the other criteria, including hospital organizations, uh, professional medical organizations. We didn't want it to just be pain medicine organizations. It had to be representing all our colleagues from rheumatologists say, as an example, uh, we didn't have a specific one, but I had a, a hematologist who's familiar with sickle cell to our surgeons, to our colleagues and perhaps you know, we had a patient advocate. I had brought on even some expertise to present to us who weren't on our task force like the Indian Health Services or CMS and we got all stakeholders in this huge project.
0: So how many members of the task force were there?
1: 29 total members at the end of the day, which literally in the beginning, it looked like we would have 50 and unwieldy, unlikely to make any dent in any issue. So we're very proud of the fact that there were 29 members in the best capacity with what we were given, meaning there were folks who applied, and then we were able to, sometimes someone could have two or three hats that we were able to checklist, you know, that they represented not only a certain part, but they also had expertise, say, in minority health, things like that, that really mattered. Uh, We were considering women's health, we're thinking about a multitude of things, you know, someone who has a familiarity with some of the challenges uh, in terms of stigma, mental health. Uh, We had a pain psychologist from Texas A&M. We had two pharmacists, one from East Tennessee, uh, the other one who works at the VA. And we then also had federal members. I was a federal member, but there was also NIH, SAMHSA, FDA, CDC. We had a representative from the Department of Defense, as well as uh, the uh, the Office of National Drug Control Policy from the White House. And, and mind you, people came in with their own perspectives, their own experience, and, and sometimes their own agenda. And and to her, the cats really ended up taking a lot of time with a big public eye. We had three big public meetings that have a set agenda that have to be posted in ahead of time, and then people asked to speak. They flew in from all over the world, or, or sorry, really the country. And then we had organizations like the Human Rights Organization that was super supportive of our work, as, and that was a surprise how much they actually were following the issue, as well as professional organizations from around the country, some that are, of course, physician specialty, like neurosurgery, ortho, palliative, and hospice medicine course, the AMA, but we also had acupuncture, social workers, we had payers, we had the insurer group, you know, trying to ensure that they don't end up having to cover everything, which we think they should, we need a full toolbox, you know, um, but we were very patient-centered, individualized care is what our real overall theme was.
0: Did you ever have those 29 people all in the same room at the same time?
1: Absolutely, yep.
0: And so I'd be interested to know, you know, take me to one of those moments when you're maybe sitting, I'm envisioning just a huge boardroom with all these different stakeholders from all these different places. And probably like one of them is looking at that other one. Cause they're like, they, they represent these perennially at odds groups. Were there yeah. any like awkward dynamics or exchanges or somebody said something and then somebody else jumped in It's was like, oh, of course, you know, the insurance guy is going to say that. I was like, oh, of course that specialist is going to be doing this. Were, were there any of those types of like tales from the trenches that you might share with us?
1: The insinuations were made, I, I sometimes <laughs> felt, uh, so we had three subcommittees, I had devised that we, into three committees, subcommittees where we worked uh, behind the scenes, 75 subcommittee meetings, of uh, which I was at all of them and led most of them, devised the PowerPoint agendas for them and uh, named one person to head it. But everybody has a job, you know, so I knew that <clears throat> you can't just leave it on their shoulders, but you sort of had to help them and, uh, and each of the subcommittees had folks on it who had expertise that complemented what we broke out into the topic. So for example, one subcommittee would be education, access to care, and I believe they also, we threw in the complementary integrative health section to even out. The other subcommittee had medications, huge topic, right? Interventions, huge topic. And uh, and one other, I believe it was uh, restorative therapies, uh, and then and then the other one had the. Re- I mean, it was it was a breakout, a divvying up, but not too many. And so the thing is, you you identify very rapidly who has an issue with whom. And I would say to the points of leadership, is one is how do you command respect in this huge national effort, which it's not an effort that can, in my view, could not be lost, could not have, I could not punt it. Uh, I didn't want to lose that, right? I don't want to fumble this um, opportunity for our, our patients, really, as, as uh, and, and our profession to showcase it. So you have to command that respect. I think that becomes known when you're respectful of everyone. I lived and breathed, I did calls. I I had sometimes our subcommittee chairs meet with me till four in the morning, East Coast time, I'm not kidding. I wanted to get the work done, the work done, and if I was willing to do it, they were willing to do it. I picked people who saw the entire amazing purpose, really hardworking, I had a great staff, great staff who were willing to work like not, not normal federal. I brought that private sector mentality and they were, they were great because, and probably hugely annoyed too, uh, because it was not, not nine to five. Yeah. It was, you know, on a dime, some things do. And they do actually have that experience because sometimes come, things come in for deadlines. Like we have to review it and get it done, put in our comments. In fact, that happens all the time. And my staff being in the office of the chief medical officer, were definitely, you know, all over it. And these are veterans of HHS. You know, one of my key people had been there for 30 years and circled the wagons and was, these are the key, you know, success people. So I would say you have to have those folks recognize them. You know, there's, when you're close encounters, it's going to, of course, cause some uh, annoyance of what I'm demanding and, and and what I was bringing to the table was an understanding in the trenches of how things really practically play out. But to your point uh, about, you know, some tensions, of course there were tensions. I mean, sometimes I felt like I was having to uh, break up a clearly brewing issue, uh, which didn't necessarily go away, but certainly in front of me, they couldn't do it. And, uh, and even sometimes you yourself get pulled into the issue when I felt like I had to say, you know, it, the, we have to be patient centered. These are patient comments in the thousands coming. We have to recognize that this is what's going on for these patients who are vested enough to give us these comments of their brave stories or very personal stories or putting it out for the public to see. It doesn't matter how it doesn't work or that we may not be appreciated, we, we have to address this. And so sometimes it may seem like, oh, holier than thou. It wasn't, I just felt like I was speaking to myself as well as them that yeah. this is something. So, you know, you the, there were a lot of, lot of um, moments there.
0: I'm sure that was nerve wracking walking into that first meeting that first time and looking around and seeing 28 of your very, you know, intelligent, esteemed colleagues from all over the place who all have opinions and all have, you know, they think they probably have a, a desired outcome in mind, and they are probably a lot of disparate opinions, and they're looking to you to be the one to make their collective efforts productive. That sounds like it's a lot of pressure.
1: Yes, well, it, preparation, I tell you, so the first real meeting, we had prepared everything. Uh, we had folks from Cleveland Clinic, from Mayo, U- University of Michigan, like excellent institutions. We had people from the front lines who are dealing in rural America with very little resources. We had folks who, like the president of the Texas Medical Board, was on the task force, uh, and and uh, you know the editor in chief of one of the big journals, and you know people who are are in their own right so well established have contributed so much, and then you can't be the you know know it all. So I, I did always want to acknowledge that amazing experience and harness it and utilize it in a way that propelled us forward. And so it was uh, hopefully never a, you know, someone is more right than others or something like Orwellian like that. It was rather, you know, here's our goals, here's what we need to do, then we break it down and we created this huge document. That first meeting was all preparation, you know, ensuring and acknowledging who they were and their accomplishments. Uh, and leaving no one out. So even when it seemed like somebody who may not have those accolades because they're not in academia, but Mm -hmm. you know what, it's a frontline uh, doctor who's primary care, who actually understands and deals with it day in and day out. And ultimately it's about her. how you say those things really matters.
0: Yeah. So it sounds like this, I'm sure this was a very, uh, you grew a lot in, in having to walk through this as a leader. I'm curious, tell me about a leader or an experience of you experiencing someone else's leadership that made an impact on you and has helped to in some way inform or shape your own perspectives on what it means to be a leader.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think of a lot of people. I mean, I think of historical figures. Um, I mean, from you know someone like Gandhi to Winston Churchill to maybe Abraham Lincoln in aspirational terms of you think and stop, eh, but how challenging their situation was And it's not about that we were at that level, although I think for the pain community, it probably felt like that. But it was that, how do you take challenging circumstances? Nothing's being handed. This is not a checklist thing. You're not just getting adorned with a title and then you get to leave. That happens a lot. And I think it makes people cynical. This was really challenging. And we were doing it with an honesty and an integrity. And it seemed overwhelming at times. You know, there And there are people with different agendas, some darker forces than we even expected, who are don't care. It, there's a callousness to it but by far the vast majority of people wanna get the right thing done. What was really nice is that even our emergency medicine docs on our task force with one who was with the American Association of Poison Control Centers, it, who really appreciated uh, the issues from a different perspective, but remained so compassionate and willing to work that we like we're closing the circle really in terms of all the different dynamics that go into number one, pain care, but understanding where the intersection may be for people who are concerned about the risk of dependence and worse yet addiction and even worse yet overdose deaths. So that was really cool to think about those folks so that you always felt humbled. And then of course, like it was really in everybody that I've seen, I mean, I even think about, oh, how does our chair handle like all these different personalities and all of their different interests and needs and stuff. We only see ourselves in that one moment but they're doing it every day and you have to keep the balance and you're also not there to be loved you're only I mean, you want to be loved but you're there to give a respectable conclusion to it yeah. and i think once the committee got that you know that they knew that we're willing to work hard i would call everybody have personal relationships I think then you start to see that you can move that tide. So yeah, you know, and I also like, sometimes it's not until you're in a certain circumstance, I say this to your audience, that you learn of what you're really made of. You don't know, we've only really know what we can do based on our training, but who you actually are uh, comes out in those sometimes not so comfortable situations, for me, this was definitely one. I kind of thought I had something within. I just didn't know I I could do all this and fly weekly or across the country and go to different meetings to speak and try to remain steadfast and honest to my colleagues. Because I, what would keep me up is if some anesthesiologist, you know, at Stanford, are like, "Oh my God, she's she's <laughs> our colleague," and she said that. It's just stuff like that that keeps you real honest because you care about that. I also was really humbled by our patients. A lot of people around the country are suffering so much worse than we could ever imagine. You And if you stop and think about it, they're being stigmatized if they're pain patients, they're being assumed to be drug seekers. And if they're addicts, they're already judged badly. And you're thinking, what are the options out there for them? And many of them were being driven to the illicit black market. Some people were on a fine regimen, never had any issues. Doc gets scared because of some DEA let- letter shuts down And guess what, suddenly out of desperation, someone is finding themselves in the worst of circumstances and the worst outcome happens. How do we not have an overreacting pendulum? And I think that became a real central theme that I didn't know I could crystallize. And maybe you look back in your history and you look at yourself and you go, maybe that's what I think I've always wanted to say is that being balanced. And to take that into anesthesiology, we are very solutions oriented. And, and we're enablers, you know, I've always thought about this because when I went there and I said, I brought in the private sector stuff, hard work doesn't worry me. I want a good outcome and I want a solution. And in this, I felt like here you see the whole task force as a big OR case that's super complex. Yeah. And I wanted to get through it and I wanted to do it well and bring in every expert that we may need ask what folks need to, but get it done, and do it right and safely. And I wanted the good outcome. Our outcomes are only acceptable to us if the patient is alive and does well. And I really think that that training is so unique. I don't think our surgical colleagues know that we see so many things happening all the time, and we are just about how do we help you? How can we make it happen? And I think that's such a huge characteristic in terms of leadership, and it's not a surprise why we see a lot of our colleagues running a hospital. They're in administration. They are running organizations. You see them and they're suddenly like CMO somewhere. Uh, And and they are, I'm not referring to me by the way. I mean, I'm thinking about private companies too. And our our anesthesiologists learn the art of of really taking a a, potential problem and bringing it to solution with a good outcome. And we also do run into, depending on where you practice, if you're private practice, you understand the inner financial challenges. You you, you actually are exposed to what our colleagues in other surgeries uh, or procedures, they could be dermatologists, they could be GI docs too, right, cardiologists. We get exposed to a lot of the challenges that exist in healthcare. And yeah. yet we're there to enable the best outcome.
0: Yeah, I'm curious, Take me back to the beginnings of your interest in public policy. How did that kind of begin to form for you? And what did your early forays look like?
1: You know, it's funny because I have had to think about that because people have asked. And I look back and I remember my father took me when I was a kid to the inauguration of uh, California Governor Pete Wilson. And that was so back in the day. And I have this like foggy memory of it. And I realized my parents were very, uh, they're immigrants, right? I mean, you look at their stories. uh, It it was uh, really amazing that my father came here. He got a scholarship. He was from a a family that really went through a a time of destitution and then brought them really by the bootstraps up. And uh, and then when he comes here, he like thinks Bay Area, which is where we are, is heaven. And then he begins to take part in it. He was planning commissioner of the city of Fremont. Hmm. He was, uh, he's still with like the Red Cross and he does stuff with the Alameda County. And he's, you know, in his late seventies but he's, he's very much a part of the community. And, and then my mother got into it too and they did sister city stuff. So I think, hmm. I didn't even realize it cause they're professionals, but you know, that, that probably just made it normal. My brother was an intern in the White House under Bill Clinton. I know in that time, wow. in the era, which I don't know if the audience is even that familiar with, but he, he just did it out and here he was in medicine and uh, he was doing accounting. And, you know, we all at our dinner table talk a lot about policies, but I will reiterate in today's world in an even balanced fashion, that's what we believe in because we think this country is really super and it gives great economic opportunity, but we have to always consider where we're at. And it's really just, I I think, uh, an interest in maybe that goes from, you know, your ancestors and stuff. I mean, and what they used to contribute. And I think it really probably was just a natural. And I didn't even know that, you know, what I was doing was public policy uh, until I formally started to do it. But I, I did take a lot of interest. I will say this one last thing and, and forgive me because I know I do run on on things, but for the younger audience, I would say as doctors, we have to hold true to our oath to be balanced, to not advance any kind of political agenda because our patients can be of any, right? We don't discriminate. We don't, we, we want anyone to, who comes to our care to feel like they're getting the best care. It doesn't matter. Uh, but policy and advocacy is only important in the sense that our voices are heard and our voices are important because they represent the voices of of good safe care for patients. And the idea that we are some we have at least in the past been more quiet than I would have liked, I think has hurt our healthcare system and definitely has hurt our patients. And I would just say it's really important to get out there and share to your patient Number one, what you do when you have an opportunity to sign on to good things that will bring good care. To do that, to be even, to know that other sides have their own uh, constriction, and when you're really even and your understanding of things, you can actually thread the needle and and come to a solution that actually may go somewhere.
0: Yeah, I think that's a that's a great reminder. I'm curious, you know, as you transition from. I think being more as a, uh, more of a physician in academic medicine and, and some policy involvement, but then becoming an important political figure, coordinating a policy effort, that all of a sudden puts you in this category of, uh, you know, we mentioned a little bit before the call, people that don't know you all of a sudden have really strong opinions about you and, and you become subject to greater scrutiny and probably like, you know, insult and you, you have to sort of change the way that you... Process these things that usually would be, I guess, hurtful or disorienting. You have to just kind of stay focused and shut all that out. I'm curious, how did that evolve for you? How did you grow into, uh, if you, if this was how it worked for you, grow into a an internal stability and a, you know, basically being able to put on your armor and say, like, I'm going to go do it again today, and I'm not going to let anybody stop me. Did you have that kind of evolution for yourself?
1: I really like how you put that, Justin. That was really nice. Yeah, put on your armor every day. Yeah, that that was, the. you know, I ran for Congress. That was also a, you know, perfect storm, no plan yeah. to do that. And I've never had an aspiration to be a member of Congress or anything. It was a perfect storm. You know, sometimes things line up. And I think it was really what actually, it, it's clear that it led me to do this, which was something that, Uh, was such an honor and a privilege, very humbling to be able to be there and do something in my own field at that right time. But that was a very eye-opening experience because of two things. One is, you're right, people criticize and they don't, a, a lot of the criticism is a manufactured criticism from your opponent. You know, you're like, that's just a blatant all out, that's not true at all. So when you learn that, it hurts you less, but you do realize that it's hard to correct things, right? That's hard. And, uh, and I think that we took them off guard, but still I saw the willingness and, and, and the willingness to really go dirty. What was really the take home message though is that so many good people, so many good people of all party backgrounds, of all geographic backgrounds, nationalities, ethnicities, especially the Bay area has that we're so fo- like, like just coming forward to help. And even though it was a really short run, cause it was so last minute, it was really only a few months, but I think we broke records, all kinds of records and got so much support that it did change me in the sense that I realized that if not you, then who, mm-hmm. and we could all ask ourselves that because we're in a culture right now where people are screaming, like, so-and-so should have done this. And, this should be done that should be done but there is no one else what i've learned is you must do your part uh, that you know we want to lead peaceful lives i think sometimes i'm like gosh why why did i get off on this road here i mean you know i have two kids great husband just vacation and why and you know yeah. like like plan our life but it's because you you can actually make a difference and somehow balance it all yeah
0: it's clear that you could carve an easier path for yourself, but I I really appreciate the fact that you think about impact and you think about the responsibility of the physician community and you take on that mantle and you're you're uh, you're coming to play and and you're uh, moving the ball down the field and and that's really exciting to see. I'm curious, in the context of taking on these huge challenges and being a public figure and also very busy, I'm sure as a as a physician clinically, what do you do to deal with the stress, unwind, try to relax a little. How do you, how do you handle that?
1: Well, some days are worse than others. I tell you, as I, as I write, like I, I did an op-ed recently for our veterans and uh, it was, you know, because I, I saw, here's a perfect storm, right? Our veterans are already subject to like a lot of challenges from their own past yeah. or from PTSD and have chronic pain issues. And then boom, you know, they're, they're like, maybe a lot of them are vulnerable in the COVID era. And it was just really writing about like keeping sure about their mental health, etc. And I'm thinking to myself, I need to do all these things uh, because I'm not doing that. And I think, um, yeah, you have to, I'm not good at this. And I am trying though to be better at it is to uh, limit that which uh, you can do. So you do things well and you do it in a balanced way. It comes right back to that balance because then you have more to give. And there's super opportunities that come around. But I think just being even and ensuring you have the help that you need and figuring that out, what, what help do you need? And I'm in that process right now to figure that out. But I love Netflix movies. I'm I love great white sharks. I love orca. I, you know, if I was, I'd probably be a marine biologist. I love to dive. I love the ocean. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I like, we'll do a quick jaunt to Half Moon Bay and like just look at the ocean. And those are for me, my Zen, Mm -hmm. absolute Zen moments, fresh air, go on a walk, hiking, call friends. I have a very, you know, I have a social side to me that loves like music and stuff. And so as you're getting in this, sometimes you catch yourself, you're a little too serious. You got to not take yourself too seriously uh, and make sure that you are down to earth, because I think that's where you always are effective, right? You have to be able to relate to people, be there to mentor them. Sometimes, you know, uh, people will come to me and it's a young person. And can you write a letter? Can you support my effort? and want to go get this degree or that. And those are priorities and they make me feel good because that's when you're like, okay, I'm, I'm me and I I like this and I hope someone will do that for my kids yeah. uh, when in the right positions for it. Yeah.
0: Have you had any mentors in your life or people that have helped to pave the way?
1: Absolutely. They've come in different shapes and forms at different stages. I would say, uh, you know, I I trained the era that we trained in right before was really tough. Like we, my time of anesthesiology was like, we did not qualify for Ah, uh, grandfathering into the board, so I did subject to Moca, right? But I also did I missed the ADR rules. So I always say that we were that you know right in that group, and it was. And I look back, I realize those folks who got me through those long, you know, really long hour weeks are are friends that I still maintain friendship with at Cornell and uh, see now and then and when they were happy to see me and you know like i was i went around to like i don't know 40 or 50 keynote talks but when i went to cornell to give grand rounds that was a super moment you know just to be back so because i get a chance to thank them and they were just just being friends and and kind was really important uh ucla i was there for only one year in between graduating Cornell, my pain fellowship and, and, and anesthesia residency at UCLA. And just that year, I made lifelong friends mm-hmm. who uh, also were mentors because we were going through the same thing and watching how they were doing it. The chair of anesthesia at that time was super, uh, Patricia Kapoor. And she did, probably doesn't even know it still, but in that one year, she did so much. And of course, coming to Stanford and having the support of, of, of our you know, current chair and others, it, it's, it's amazing because sometimes you wonder, what do they think that, you know, do they think this is, you know, good or smart and yet they'll, you know, support me to do it. So I, I appreciate that. And very strong figures. There's always someone out there who may not even know. It was the phrase they said at a time you really needed to hear it. Yeah. To me, that kind of mentorship, whether it's long-term or just a moment I I never uh, forget. And, you know, hopefully we all stay helpful to them. That's what I want to be to them and others who come my way because it is life-changing.
0: We shared before the call a little bit talking about the importance of physicians in decision-making roles, institutionally, organizationally, and also with policy. Uh, Maybe you could just take a minute and sort of share why you think that's important if you think it is and, and for the listeners of this podcast a lot of anesthesia and pain physicians themselves many future leaders do you think that anesthesiology is a uniquely the way i think it is a uniquely composed specialty that i think is going to probably have more uh leaders per capita and it's funny you know right now i'm thinking about well we've got dr adams and we've got you the our anesthesiologists in chief are, I think bearing that out. How do you how do you think about that in, in the context of physicians and decision-making roles?
1: Absolutely. Uh, so you are so right. I think we will have more per capita leaders from anesthesia. And that really again goes to what I was stating earlier is our ability to be solutions oriented. We are uniquely in a different manner trained than others. We're doing ICU care Every day in the operating room, right? I mean, if a case is straightforward, it's straightforward. But if it's more complex, it's really ICU care. We have skill sets, physical skill sets, and on-the-spot decision making, being preemptive, thinking about a certain plan, and we're enabling things. We we rarely have the opportunity to opt out opt out of something. Uh, we're all about patient safety. We created the field, really. We created the field of critical care, and 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 really pain where it is and that's amazing. I think we're going to continue to evolve and utilize this uh, and move the, the field of medicine forward. I, I just think those skills are so amazing. Whenever something suddenly happens in an emergency type of situation, I really feel like I come into my own. It's like grace under pressure. And I think that's true for most anesthesiologists. We are trained for those moments. And that's, those are like great, Uh, abilities crisis management conflict management all fancy terms about things that we do every day so I'd like people to think about that because how you use those skills just the key thing is this don't don't sell your soul don't sell your principles even as you go up higher and it's a harder battle because you have other stakeholders you have to remain true to that which you know is there whenever that moment came and someone was saying you know Uh, oh, interventional procedures for pain are not, you know, they're just over, you know, some sort of moment, you have to still stand up and say, listen, the vast majority, et cetera, dot, 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 and follow through with what you want to say, what you believe. You can say it in a really smart, strategic way, but don't just hold true to your principles.
0: Yeah. I really appreciate your time today, Dr. Singh. I want to ask one last question, then we'll wrap it up your your career trajectory and and the way which you've applied yourself it's it's obvious that you have you're immensely accomplished and there's a lot of things that I'm sure you could point to as things that you're proud of moments when of professional or policy validation i'd love to just close with a brief story of one of those moments where you after a lot of effort and a lot of time and a lot of mental and emotional energy you had some uh, breakthrough or some accomplishment where you you thought, you know what, I've I've given a lot and I've been through a lot, but in this moment, I can experience the joy of the accomplishment and, and see the progress that's being made.
1: Oh, so the moment that I enjoyed it all? Yeah. Oh, geez. I, you know, I've had a lot of reflection over these months uh, because it was so fast paced. I felt like those years, it was like ten years compressed in just a short time, maybe yeah. longer. I have so many memories, and I reflect on it, and I, you know, kept a lot of things, and I look at it, and I really thank God that I had, you know, or thank the larger, whatever universe, whatever people believe in, the larger forces that I had, the right people at the right time. It, it I always believe in that sort of maybe whether it's destiny or whatnot. It was really amazing. And I really started to first understand it and appreciate it. I went to Japan with my kids and my husband right after. And that was such the perfect place to go do this. We were at temples and we were like in um, beautiful like scenes and the country so great. And I was able to really stop and, and say, wow, this was, you know, really something that I could be proud of. And what's great is I remain very close to my t- the task force uh, and uh, you know, it, it's amazing that I can bring them together for efforts still. And I think it's because by some chance and luck in life and, and maybe coming into your own, you know, you earn the trust of great people and uh, they bring out the best in you and, and hopefully the other way around too. Awesome.
0: Well, thanks for sharing that story. And uh, Dr. Singh, it's been a pleasure having you today on the Anesthesia Success Podcast.
1: Thank you, Justin. It's really, it was great fun. Appreciate it.
0: If you liked what you heard this week, head on over to anesthesiasuccess.com, where you can find more content and free resources to help you build a successful career in anesthesiology and pain management. If you wanted to leave a review in iTunes, I would also really appreciate it. Thanks for using some of your valuable time to join me today on the Anesthesia Success Podcast.